Hey, it is really, really good to be together this morning. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 14, we are going to fly this morning. We have a lot, a lot to cover. Before we do that, next Sunday is Team World Vision Sunday, and I invite you to come out. Bring friends to come out. I think it's a great way to invite friends to church and see what your church cares about. Um, it's also pretty cool is uh, last year it was just Crossview that took part in Team World Vision. And uh, we have a number of other churches, Christ the King, Hosanna, Elevate, other churches that even next Sunday will be kicking it off in a similar way to us so that our community, our city can see uh, the type of things that Jesus cares about. So uh, remember that. And uh, John 14, this is a huge chapter. This is a chapter basically dealing with big questions of faith. Uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Who's heard that verse before? Yep. For some of you, it just got you, you're excited when you hear that verse. Others, you cringe because it does something in you. It scares you. Um, you've heard it used in unhealthy ways. This is the chapter where we have a conversation about the Holy Spirit, but it's in I think it's a, a part of Scripture that um, all of Scripture is important, but it's a part that we really need to take note. Chapters 14 through 17 is right before Jesus will go to the cross. They're the last words that he's going to have with his followers. Um, as a pastor, I've had the opportunity a few times, and I do call it an opportunity, to be in a room where there's a dying mother, uh, father, grandmother, grandfather type of thing, and they know they're going to pass away soon, so they bring their family together to share with them some last words. And what usually happens in that type of setting is everybody leans forward. Everybody wants to hear what's going on because these are the last words and these might, might be a little more important than even what they've said over the course of their life. And that's essentially what John 14 to 17 is all about. And we're on the hills, chapter 12 and 13, you've had the triumphal entry, you've had Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, and then you had Jesus predicting his death, and the disciples are in this place of what is going on, what is God up to, we don't understand it, we're a little nervous because if Jesus is going to die or go away like he's saying, then a good king, because they thought he was the king, a good king, is a dead king is not a very good king. And their hearts are, are, are sort of boiling over. It's what do we do? What's going on? And then we come to John chapter 14, verse 1. It says this. Right away, Jesus knows where they're at. He, he knows what they've heard. He knows what's going on in their heart. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I, I know that you're nervous about what's going on, uh, where I'm going to go, this talk of death. But trust in God and trust also in me. And that's, that's really the point of this whole chapter. Trust in God, trust in me, that that is one and the same, that Jesus is God. Verse 2, there's more than enough room in my father's home, most likely a reference to the temple. The only other time we have that language used is in chapter 2, and it has to do with the different rooms in the temple. So it's, it's imagery that would have made sense to them. The temple was the center of Jewish life. It's where everything happened, commerce and worship. And what he's saying, in the temple that I'm going to build, that I'm about, there's room for anyone who follows me. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will be with me where I am. And that is, again, that's, that's a reference to he's going to die and then he's going to rise again and then he's going to come back to them. And that's the reference I hear. I will come back and be with you. You're nervous about what's going to go on. I'm telling you I'm, I'm going to die, but I'm going to be with you again. And then here it is. And you know the way to where I am going. It, Bible study, one of the things to, to do when you're reading down through a chapter, look at words that are used again and again and again. It's basic study of literature. 
And this language of the way is used a number of different times. And we're going to talk about that at length in a second here. So Thomas says, no, we don't know the way. We have no idea where you're going. How can we know the way? A little frustrated. And Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I wanna, um, I'm going to read a little bit from a book here, but a phenomenal book is a book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. I think it's one of the most thoughtful, current books, apologetic books about our faith. And the first chapter of The Reason for God by Tim Keller is all about the uniqueness of Christianity. In other words, what about other religions? What about Jesus saying that he is the only way, which we believe? So how do we talk about that well? How do we have conversations about it? I would strongly encourage everyone to read that chapter. The whole of the book is amazing, but that chapter is worth the price. I think it's around $10 online, worth the price of that book. So Jesus is answering Thomas's question about where are you going? What is the way? And he says, I am the person of Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way he's been talking about. It's been the point of the conversation. The way is, in their mind, it was the way to relate to God. That's what they want to do. They want to see God. They want to be with God. And Jesus says, I am the way to God. By the way, these were words of comfort for the disciples. Remember verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. And now he's saying, I am the way. I'm not going to be with you forever, but I'm the way was meant to be of comfort for them. And often we've used that word not to comfort people, but to guilt them into something. And for Jesus in the first century, talking to these people, these were supposed to be words of comfort. We'll come back to that. And he says, I am the truth. And in early Judaism, this was a title for God, the idea that God was truth. And starting in chapter 1 of John, Jesus has been saying that he is the truth, he is the word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 1 he said, I am God, and I am the Word. I am the embodiment of truth. So just as God is truth, I am truth. Again, words of comfort. The truth is not the 600 plus laws that the Pharisees want you to obey so that you can see God and relate to God. The truth is the person of Jesus Christ. And then the last word he uses is I am the life. Again, used numerous times throughout the book of John, this idea that life is what a relationship with Jesus actually produces. It's resurrection life. It's life to the full, like he says in John 10.10. I have come that you might have life and have life abundantly. But let's be honest. John 6, or 14 verse 6, is the elephant in the room. When we, say, I, when we say, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, for some of you in here, again, like I said at the beginning, it's like, yeah, that's right. I use that all the time when I'm sharing my faith. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Put your faith in him and get to heaven when you die. And that's true. That's not exactly the point of what Jesus is saying to the disciples here. And often we add other things like, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But you also, let's talk about some other things that I need to, to add on to that. You need to have the same theology that I have because my theology is right. Amen? Amen. We had other things that, that, that maybe are a little more uncomfortable. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and you need to vote Republican. <laughs> really uncomfortable laugh there. And for some of you, you would say Democrat. <laughs> but but we, we, we sort of begin to add things onto it, or we use it not as words of comfort, but as words sort of that we beat over the head. 
We'll come to that in a second because we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And these are invitational words that should produce life. But for others of you in this room, and that's the beauty of a community like Crossview, you hear this verse and it just makes you nervous. You begin to tense up. That you, you sort of think, how can Christianity be so prideful, so arrogant, to say that they know the way to God? To say that there is only one God? How can we do that? That's full of pride. That's full of arrogance. We're called to be meek and humble. It doesn't make sense. I'm going to read a part. This is a commentary um, that is so practical. It's by Tom Wright. It's called John for Everyone. These are absolutely amazing. And he is one of the brilliant scholars of our time. And he says this. I'm going to read an extended, extended part. So, so stay with me on this. Thomas in character is grumpy. And then he quotes Thomas. What do you mean? We know the way. We don't even know where you're going. Jesus' reply haunted and confronted the world's imagination ever since. I am the way. If you want to know how to get to the Father's house, you must come with me. And within the Western world of the last two centuries or so, the sayings of Jesus, this saying of Jesus has become one of the most controversial. I am the way, the truth, and the life. How dare he, people have asked. How dare John or the church or anyone else put such words in anyone's mouth? Isn't this the height of arrogance to imagine that Jesus or anyone else is the only way? Don't we know that this attitude has done untold damage around the world as Jesus' followers have insisted that everyone else should give up their own ways of life and follow his instead? I know people confessing Christians for whom it seems that their central article of faith is their rejection of the idea of Jesus' uniqueness. Like this so disturbs some that we completely reject this and we don't even think about it. He goes on to say, the trouble with this is that it doesn't work. If you dethrone Jesus, you enthrone something or someone else instead. The belief that all religions are really the same sounds nice and democratic, though the study of religion quickly shows that it isn't true. What you are really saying if you claim they're all the same is that none of them are distinct. They're distorted images of reality. You're saying that reality, God or the divine, is remote and unknowable and no one can actually know him. So do your own thing. That neither Jesus, nor Buddha, nor Moses, nor Krishna give us any direct access to God. They're all away towards the foothill of the mountain. None of them get to the summit. It isn't just John's gospel that you lose if you embrace this idea. The whole New Testament, the whole idea of early Christianity insists that the one true and living God, the creator, is the God of Israel. And that the God of Israel has acted decisively within human history to bring Israel's story to its proper goal and through that to address and rescue the world. The idea of a vague general truth to which all religions bear some kind of oblique witness is foreign to Christianity. And I would say it's foreign to most religions. One more paragraph. The real answer is that Though, of course, it's true that many Christians and churches have been arrogant in the way they have presented the gospel, the whole setting of this passage shows that such arrogance is a denial of the very truth it's claiming to present. The truth, the life, through which we know and find the way, is Jesus himself. 
The Jesus who washed the disciples' feet and told them to copy his example. The Jesus who was on his way to give his life as the shepherd for the sheep. Was that arrogant? Was that self-serving? Only when the church recovers the nerve to follow Jesus in his own mission and vocation, I suspect, will it uncover, will it be able to recover the nerve fully in making the claim of verse 6. Friends, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus alone is the way to God. Let's keep reading. We could, we could go on there, I know. Hopefully that gets you thinking. Uh, verse, verse 7. If you had really known me, you would know who my father is. From now on, you do, not, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip asks this question. And by the way, the whole room, the moment Philip gets done of this question, there would have been this combined gasp of, did you really say that? And here's his question. Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Because you see, they all knew that in ancient Israel, it was simply understood that no one can see God and live. It's one of the stories that we see throughout Scripture is no one can see God, God and live. We see a story back, to, back in Exodus of Moses wanting to see God, making this similar request. And God puts him in this little cleft of a mountain, and the presence and glory of God goes by. And he's not allowed to come out and see the glory of God until it's past. And the Hebrew actually says that he could only see the backside of God. That, that, that was all he could bear to see as a mortal God's too much for us to bear, to see. Too holy, too powerful, too infinite, too full of potential and life and love for any mortal to see. And yet Philip asked God anyway. He says, Jesus, if you want us to trust you, to show us the Father, what does God look like? And it seems like a gutsy question. It seems like something that shouldn't be asked. But I suspect we understand where it comes from. Because we've been there too. We've been at our wit's end. Desperate for hope. Desperate that maybe something could be better. Believing that tragedy is maybe not all there is. Maybe it's when the doctor told you the cancer returned. Maybe it's when a loved one died. Maybe it's when your spouse left you. Maybe it's one more miscarriage. Whatever you want to put in there. We've all been where Philip was. In this moment where we simply needed some reassurance, the glimmer of hope. And we cry out like Peter, just show us the Father. Show us that maybe there's hope, maybe we can be satisfied. And I think Jesus does not respond here in frustration. He doesn't get mad at Philip. I think he responds in love. Verse 9. Have I been with you all this time, Philip? And yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of the work you've seen me do. Verse 12. So all this talk, Jesus is the way, them wanting to see the Father, and he says, I, I, I am God incarnate. Verse 12, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. Listen to this language, guys. And even greater works, because I am going to be with the Father. Anyone, that includes anyone in this room. 
I think this verse seems so over the top. Jesus saying to his disciples, you'll do greater things than I have done. And the point is this, that quantitatively, us together, followers of Christ, really being like Jesus in our relationships and in the world around us, will even do greater things. It's a bold statement. But as a follower of Jesus, it's something I want to cling to, that as the church, as followers of Jesus, both a local church and the church universal, that we, naming Jesus as Lord and Savior, can make a significant difference. And then verse 13. You can ask for anything in my name. By the way, kids, underline anything. You ask for anything in my name and I will do it. So the Son can bring glory to the Father. And he says it again. So it's like, this is important. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it. So what does that mean? What what does it mean to ask for anything and God will actually do it? Does that mean I can ask for the car I want, whatever you put in there? It's important to know what that word, in my name, means. When they would use the the language of in my name, what it meant was that they would be acting on behalf of God or as God's representative. So you can ask for anything that makes sense as you act on behalf as God's representative. Anything. Okay, we've got to keep reading. There's just so so much... uh, to talk about this morning. If you love me, verse 15, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, the Greek word paraclete, who will never leave you. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. Underline, make note. This is important. The word sort of has two ideas. One is advocate. One is that the Holy Spirit will plead your case to God for you. Whatever place of tragedy and hurt you enter into, the Holy Spirit pleads to God for you. The other sort of idea that this word carries is comforter. You've seen or you've gone through a tragedy and people come alongside you and they're with you and they hug you and they cry with you and they're just there to help you. It doesn't make the tragedy go away, but it gives you the strength to walk through the tragedy, right? That's a part of what the Holy Spirit does for us. Keep reading verse 17. He is the Holy Spirit, leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him, but you know him because he lives with you now and later will be with you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. By the way, one of the best ways to understand the Holy Spirit, it's the presence of Jesus Christ inside you. Read down through the language of this. Verse 19. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live with you, you also will live. When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. Because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them and will reveal myself to them. Verse 22. Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, but the other disciple at the name said to him, Lord, why are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not the world at large? And that's important because in the book of John, we see sort of conflicting messages about what the world is. There's, there's times where there's language of the world that there's something wrong with it, but then we also have passages like John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. And both are true that the world at times talks about the broken human condition and the pain and wickedness and evil that comes out of our hearts. But the world is also the good world that God created, that God is moving towards, coming into, reconciling, making right through his life and death and resurrection. Verse 23, Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. 
My Father will love them and we will come and make our home with them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the Father who sent me. I'm telling you these things while I'm still with you. But when the Father sends the advocate, sends the paraclete as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. John chapter 14, this first teaching that we have about the Holy Spirit, you really have four ideas about the Holy Spirit. What the presence of God in you does. That it comforts, it's an advocate, and it will teach and remind what Jesus did and said so that we can live and act that out. Verse 27, I'm leaving you with a gift. Peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you, I'm going away, but I will come back to you again. If you really love me, you would be happy that I'm going to the Father who is greater than I am. I have told you these things before they happen so that when they do happen, you will believe. I do not have much time to talk to you because the rulers of this world approaches. He has no power over me, but I will do what the Father requires of me so that the world will know that I love the Father. Come, let's get going. Whew. There's a lot going on in John chapter 14, right? And we could spend a significant amount of time going through some of these things. But I want to ask the questions. We sort of get an overview of John chapter 14 and what's going on. The question that sits in me is, why is this so important? And if you know how to study literature and you're looking at a passage of literature, one of the first things you do is you look at the context. You look at what was going on right before, what's going on after. And what had been going on before was Jesus teaching about the fact that he's going to die. And right before John 14, right before we have this teaching of I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the way to relate to God is through me, through Jesus. And before we have this teaching about the advocate, here's what it says at the end of John 13. Verse 31 says, as soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. And God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will soon give glory to the Son. Dear children, I will only be with you a little longer. That's why they're troubled in verse 1 of chapter 14. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you cannot come where I am going. Listen to this. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. You love, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The language of new commandment would have, ears would have perked up like, he, he's giving another commandment? That's a big deal. We, 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 have, we know the commandments. Jesus, it's a significant deal. And the commandment is love each other. And he says there that by your love, the world will know that you are my disciples. Friends, one of the greatest witnesses that we have to the world, one of the greatest ways that we point people towards Jesus Christ is how we love each other. Can I get an amen? It's a really big deal. It was the emphasis for almost all the writings of Paul. Like how we get along tells the story of who we follow. And I would propose that chapter 14 of John is on the heels of what Jesus just said. And the only way to really love each other is to get John 14. Like the only way to love each other well is to understand that Jesus is the way. Not you. Not what you think. Not what you think someone else should be, but Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the one who gives life. 
And the only way to let go of pride and selfishness, the only way to let go of arrogance is to depend on the advocate that is within us to teach us the ways of Jesus. And friends, this is as practical as it gets. Richard Hayes, a great New Testament scholar out of Duke Divinity School, says this simply, he says, love is simply humble service to others. Loving each other is just humble service to others. It's Paul saying in Philippians, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself. It's Paul in Ephesians 4 saying, put on this new life in Christ. And by the way, when you put on the new life in Christ, stop lying to each other. Start telling the truth. Only say things to each other that build one another up. Only say things to each other, Ephesians 4, that build one another up. Forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. One of the greatest ways that we tell people that there is a good and loving God. That we tell about this God who lived and died for our sins and rose again. The greatest way that we talk about the way is how we love each other. Let's pray. God, so much more we could talk about, God, but this, this is your word. And your word brings life, God. So any of my words that have not been true, that are not of you this morning, God, I pray they would fall to the ground. And I pray your word, through the living word, Jesus Christ, would bring life to each one this morning. We pray this in your name. By the power of your name, we ask this. Amen.